With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Hayes. Always in bewilderment. I uh, (laughs) thought I had a jump on it. We had uh, my guest on the call, and I'm calling back. Hopefully... Hello. Hey there, Brian. How are you? I'm uh, very well. Yeah, the, the couple of days after Christmas here, and let me give you an intro. Uh, today, my guest is an ongoing uh, guest on the show. We've done a series of podcasts on gentrification, uh, COVID recently, Ameri- the American crisis, political crisis, and today we're back to gentrification and globalization. Uh the new book, Fragments of Boston, How to Become a Global Citizen in an Era of Global Gentrification. It's the title of your new book, uh, using Boston as an example. Brian demonstrates the effect of gentrification and globalization on a city like Boston and how these examples might enlighten the individual to become a global citizen in the area, era of gentrification. His approach is apolitical addressing the social, economic, and political ramifications of neoliberal ideologies and thought patterns and their impact on the global scene. Most important, he addresses the isolation, loneliness, and neuroses that accompanies this shift. So we're going to listen to you to ways to suggest that we, the cognitive workers and the city dwellers can cope with this rapid evolution. So uh, I'll, I'll let you just say hi, and we'll just uh, start a little chat here. Yeah, no, that was a good introduction. I, I think that um, gentrification and the way that I see it um, is part of a, it's the urban um, wing of a planetary process that is now rapidly spreading across the entire surface of the globe. And because, and you know, I, I do think this book I wrote from, it's basically a series of essays and, and short interventions that I had written between 2015 and 2019 roundabout. So I do think that COVID, what has happened to cities as a result of COVID, basically, you know, emptying out of the cities and trying to find space out in the country or in suburbs does throw a little bit of a monkey wrench into the theoretical edifice that I've been developing regarding gentrification. Because what we have seen in the 21st century is a radical increase in the importance of the city, not just simply as, an, as, as the hub of the global economy or the series of nodal points that run the global economy, but also really in terms of its geopolitical importance. I mean, one of the examples that I, that I have cited before is that when Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord, you had all these mayors saying, well, we're not going to abide by that you know, like Bill de Blasio in New York City. And, and that would have been really unthinkable, let's say, in the 1970s or 1960s or even 1980s. Um, so the city is becoming a more important civic structure. It's becoming a, a more important geopolitical structure. And clearly, because the way global capitalism is now organized, 
these cities are the financial and technological, what I call nodal points of the entire global economy. So there's also a critical importance there. So gentrification becomes a more important um, social process to analyze because of the fact that cities are themselves so important. And because gentrification is the, the basic socioeconomic and cultural um, principle, you could say, of organization and contemporary city life, it's important to um, flesh it out and, and, and uh, develop a, a cognitive map or a theory to explain it to people of what exactly that we're dealing, what exactly uh, we are dealing with here. And, and the purpose of this most recent book, uh, Fragments of Boston, which will be out in January of 2021, um, it's, it's my 15th book. Um, and and of, of all the books that I've written, three are about gentrification. So this is, this is definitely a topic that I'm interested in and that I've written about. And, and the way I tend to write is I try to make links between the universal and the particular. And what I mean by that is I try to make links between gentrification as a global process and specific examples in Boston and Boston neighborhoods to show the, the, how they're symmetrical and how there's a relationship and how they're, even though gentrification, let's say in uh, Lima, Peru might look a lot different than what's happening in Boston, there is a, an underlying structural similarity that we can look at and we can perceive even if the, what it looks like on the surface of things is in fact quite different. Yeah. What I loved about, the approach is uh, being a Bostonian and we both know one of part of the, what you mentioned here is the fact that, and I noticed it myself, I live right across the street from where they filmed Goodwill hunting. And I started to notice the intense uh, interest in the whole uh, South Boston phenomenon, the Irish Catholic gangster, uh, the Irish Catholic tough neighborhood, uh, not an integrated with also the Italian uh, neighborhood. So those two very strong uh, influences in the city. Uh, and in our past conversations about gentrification, you mentioned the movie itself, uh, you know, the Goodwill Hunting, and you also mentioned the town as uh, two different movies in two different time periods, uh, characterizing two different forms of gentrification as it started to evolve. So I, I think you and I would agree, and I think a lot of other people would agree, that picking Boston, um, which is the, the birthplace of the, the nation, um, is, is really significant. And, and more than significant, it's, it's fascinating. Well, maybe. I mean, I think a lot of cities are interesting. Boston has had a um, nice little run in Hollywood over the past 20 years or so. That is, as you correctly noted, people have been – uh, enamored with, uh, you know, and it's interesting. They've been enamored with the kind of dark side of Boston, the the kind of on the underbelly, you could say, whether it be like organized crime or bank robbers in Charlestown or a story like Goodwill Hunting, which is about a working class genius from South Boston. But, you know, one of the reasons why they're interested in these people is because these people don't exist anymore. They, they've been pushed out of the city and that kind of inner city gritty uh, type of existence, which was, which, which ran with the industrialized economy, um, which really doesn't exist anymore in these urban spaces. The urban spaces are run on the digital economy, the networked economy, um, the global capitalist economy. And you're not going to get these, um, you know, tough guy characters walking around neighborhoods in South Boston or Charleston or the North End anymore. You're going to get 
young professionals, um, what I call cognitive workers or, or what colloquial known as, known as yuppies, um, that's what you're going to see now. You're not going to see these, um, these former remnants of the industrial apparatus. So I do, but you know, I think it's very normal to be interested in a phenomenon as it's fading away. I mean, I don't think that's really unique to Boston, but I think these string of Boston movies that have kind of glamorized um, the, the underbelly, you could say, the CD underbelly of the city. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, definitely. I mean, I, I like those movies too. I've, I've written about those movies and, and I've known people in my life that could have been characters in those movies. So, I mean, I, I think that um, it is interesting but I also think that those type of people, let's say Goodwill Hunting or um, Dougie McRae, Ben Affleck's character from the town, these people cannot really function in a gentrified horizon. These are throwbacks to an industrial-based era. And these films like Goodwill Hunting and, and the town are talking about on, on the kind of a more abstract meta level, that transition from industrialization to virtual to virtuality or to um you know the era of really gentrification and that transition is traumatic for the pre-existing social cohesion of the community in the town's case it's charlestown and google hunting case of boston so um i do think it's interesting but at the same time yeah i mean maybe boston is a bit you know more interesting than some other cities maybe like more interesting than kansas city or um you know, Topeka, Kansas. But I, I, I think certainly New York has a lot of stories in Philadelphia and Los Angeles and San Francisco. But um, there is something about the Irish Catholic experience in Boston that is unique in the sense that it played a very significant role in the political and social development of the city, where, yes, the Irish in New York played a significant role, but it wasn't nearly as significant in relation to other ethnic groups and, 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 and other political players in the city. Whereas the Boston Irish really dominated Boston, you know, um, in the past, since the year 1900, there've been two, there've only been two other non-Irish Catholic mayors. Um, of course, Mayor Menino, who was mayor from 93 to 2014. And then you had another guy in the 1920s named Malcolm Nichols, who was a, you know, a, a Protestant basically. So, um, you know, he was, he was, a kind of from the Beacon Hill set, you could say. Um, so, so the Irish Catholic, influence on um, certainly the political development of Boston, but also the, the overall social fabric was, was there. There's no doubt about it. And, and that's interesting, but that clearly, and you know, one of the chapters in the book is called in this new book I wrote is called the death of the Irish American politician. You know, their, their days are numbered. Their, their days are numbered. Um, and that of course, their um, you know, what's interesting about, the fact that there are, you know, Marty Walsh, for instance, the contemporary mayor of Boston, and there are a few others on the city council. Um, the fact that they're still able to um, even be there is, is quite amazing because there really aren't that many, you know, working class Irish Catholics in Boston anymore. I mean, that's, that's, a, and, and if they are there, it's more of a sprinkling of people who have been able to re, uh, maintain a family home. You know, they inherited the home from the grandmother or something. Um, but it's, it's certainly not a, coherent political community in the way it once was you know well you know you've make i'm going to just take one last uh defense of my thesis is that um think of what you know i i grew up here 
And uh, think of what we not only did uh, in terms of having Hollywood's attention and the underbelly. I mean, we, my formative years was the, the rise of John F. Kennedy and all of the attention that came with that. In fact, we'll get to one of the chapters, which is the Boston accents, but uh, the world just embraced Camelot. I mean, we're talking, I mean, the, the guy goes to Germany and he's, you know, Berliner, Berliner, and he's embraced and loved um, by the entire world. And that's Boston centric. Um, and I'll just jump into what happened in the 90s, late 80s. 90s. But I also think what, what made Kennedy so appealing as a person and, and really as a family is that, yes, they had their roots in, you know, the, on the on the um, on the maternal side, on the Fitzgerald side. They, they come from the North End. On the paternal side, the Kennedy side, they come from East Boston. So there is this kind of lineage of Boston political consciousness, and not just, not, not just Boston political consciousness, but of a, a specific kind of working-class Irish Catholic consciousness. Now, Kennedy's father um, you know, became extraordinarily wealthy. So it, it wasn't like the Kennedys, you know, JFK and Bobby and Teddy, grew up in a in a working class family, but they had that um, um, ge- ge- genetic uh, lineage, you, you could say, that, that tapped into that macro history of Boston politics. But I do think what made the Kennedys so appealing was that they were able to transcend in many ways Boston and become um, a kind of universal figure. I don't think, yes, I do think when people think of the Kennedys, they think of Boston, but they also think of this something special, this this universal appeal, in which they're able to transcend any particular um, um, identification, and 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 kind of appeal to the global totality. And certainly, someone like JFK, and certainly, I think even more so, Bobby Kennedy, um, who really never got a chance to be, you know, he was assassinated in '68, and he, he may have even been more appealing than than JFK, um, had that universal appeal. So I I think that's a not, not to downplay their Boston connection, but I, I do think that there was something quite magical about those brothers and their, um, their political acumen and their appeal to the universal. Absolutely. But in your I mean, I think of this, you know, Bobby Kennedy went on a hunger strike with, 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 with Cesar Chavez. I mean, that, that in itself would almost be unthinkable today for a national politician to go on a hunger strike I think I think Kennedy fasted for 24 hours um, with a with a radical labor activist, someone like Chavez, who was the the leader of the United Farm Workers. I mean, that today would be almost unthinkable for a. Um, I mean, even, even someone like Bernie Sanders wouldn't do that, you know. And you know that speaks to someone like Bobby Kennedy's deep sense of humanity and care for other people. And um, um, yeah, so I, I think that they were were, were really well, remarkable human beings. Right. Well, and I'll I'll tie it to one of the the themes that runs throughout the book and the last couple of books is this um, concept of character, which um, that those they were two amazing characters. And and also I'll just throw them out. You know, uh, Tip O'Neill and um, Moakley. I mean, strong strong figures. Um, you know, evolved and emerged from that whole little graphic. Uh, area that that uh, international impact, and I think uh, I don't think we're going to see it anymore. Absolutely, because we've lost that. 
Um, and I'll just throw one more uh, way that I see Boston uh, vibrates. I mean, being a comedian and seeing the the amazing explosion of comedians, I could go down a list from you know, Stephen Wright to Lenny Clark to Jay Leno to, um, uh, you know, on and on and on uh, that influence comedy in a way with the accent, with the rough, the edge, um, so much so that it overpowered, literally overpowered the other four, three centers, which was San Francisco, L.A. and New York. In many ways, uh, a lot of those guys couldn't compete with the, uh, especially the rapid fire um, uh, speech, the, 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 the edge, the harshness um, that signifies Boston. So mm-hmm. enough, said, enough said on that, that, you know, that we did it. But that's why I love what I think that you, using Boston, uh, even though a lot of people may not be here, they get it. They know what, through the movies, through the TV I mean, let's talk about Cheers. They, they get but I mean, it. the whole point of, of my analysis and my writing on gentrification is that that whole network, that whole social ground where those comedians and those politicians and, and those cultural um, signifiers came from doesn't exist anymore. You know, exactly. it's, just, it's gone, you know. Yep. So yep. Boston's not going to really produce people like that anymore because the, right. the very ground by which that kind of consciousness came from is no longer functioning it doesn't exist and i think that's why you know? your work is so um it's so fascinating because it takes the contrast of the, that vitality that toughness that edge that aliveness what it is now is why boston using boston is really rich i i think you know that may not have been your intention but it certainly drives home the point well i mean i i I think it was important when you're writing about an abstract concept of gentrification, like gentrification, it's certainly important to include particular manifestations of the concept. So I had to use something that I was at least familiar with. And of course, because I grew up in Boston and, and um, you know, my, my family's from Boston, that was, that came naturally to me. So, um, so yes. You know, you start the book with, uh, <laughs> and it struck right at home with me, with uh, the Boston accent and um, the well, 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 the, 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 the name okay. of the chapter title is In Defense of the Boston Accent. Right. And, uh, and you mentioned the remedial classes to uh, eliminate that and how people are signing up uh, because the, uh, the, industri- the technological, the digital age, uh, they find that, that 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 language, that accent is in many ways threatening um, because it does, it is, it's not uh, leveled. So what, you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, what I think that all dialects and local accents are in trouble today, first and foremost, because when everyone's connected and communicating over the same network, like we have with social media and and the entire internet or the entire digital apparatus, what you get is a sameness, a, a sense of sameness where this kind of difference or um, diversity doesn't really exist so much in the w- real world anymore. It becomes more of a branding mechanism on social media. And you, you really see this with accents. And you re- I, I think in many ways, 
we're kind of living through or maybe beginning to live through kind of this crisis of linguistic diversity. So I think with the Boston accent, you know, if you walk through Boston today, most people don't even have Boston accents because most people who live in Boston aren't really from Boston. They're, they're transplants that have come into work in Boston as part of the global economy. And so what I mentioned in the, in, in the first chapter was that there's, there are classes now, or, or there was a class to get rid of your Boston accent. And I found that interesting because one of the things that's – because what the economy wants is – or what – I don't know if, it, if it's necessarily a conscious thing in, in, in the sense that a CEO wants to hire somebody who doesn't have a, a, an accent. But the way culture is moving is towards a sense of pervasive sameness. And these accents, whether it be like a strong Louisiana Bayou accent or a Boston accent or a Brooklyn accent, it, 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 it represents this kind of break or rupture in the sense of the same. What I mean by that is if you were to walk into a downtown hedge fund in Boston or a you know, digital marketing firm or, a, or, or, or any kind of, um, kind of avant-garde uh, operation that's that's working in close proximity to the global economy. You, you're not going to find people with these like really really strong accents, like for instance, in like a southern accent. Or you're going to find people that generally talk in the same way, that have the same kind of linguistic vibration when they say words. So the the point that I'm that I try to make is that um, when we think of true diversity when when we think of planet earth you can't think of it as like everyone having the same accent that would totally eradicate the very idea of diversity you you want to think of locality and the connection of communities to a, a specific geography which will produce these wonderful variations in how people express themselves and that is in jeopardy today whether it be in boston or whether it be in another country because when the entire global population is communicating and encountering each other through this digital matrix, that will be an engine to eradicate true embodied existential diversity. And it creates a culture of what I call sameness, you know, and same with a capital S. Um, so, 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 so yes. Can I, can I quote, can I quote you from the book? Sure, 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 sure. Okay, but what we ultimately see here is the shift from embodied and messy social reality, which is basically the Boston accent because it's it's messy, and to a disembodied sure. and smooth virtual reality is the ever-present desire to fully optimize the functionality of both global capitalism and the circuitry of global technological apparatus. And then you go on to... Uh, quote a, um, a philosopher I love, theologian I love, Kierkegaard. And um, you say, he talks about the leveling that took place, and even though it was written over 150 years ago, he talks about the leveling that's happening. He says, the leveling process is a deathly silence in which one can hear one's heartbeat, a silence which, which nothing can pierce, in which everything is engulfed, powerless to resist. So, you know, I was kind of surprised to hear uh, Kierkegaard embracing uh, the rebel spirit. And no, 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 no. He's he's not embracing the rebel spirit. He's he's attacking it. I mean, Ah. he's not embracing. He's he's critiquing the. You know, I used a quote from from a book he wrote called um, 
the present age. And Kicker, I mean, he's making a ruthless critique similar to, to what I'm doing. You know, he's, he's critiquing what he calls this leveling process or what I right. call a, a crisis of the same. And I think if he was alive today, he'd be horrified by how the Internet and how um, the structure of global capitalism and how social media and, and so on and so forth radically accelerate this leveling process, radically accelerate this, um, this velocity towards sameness. And a local accent functions precisely the opposite. It's, it's authentic difference. It's authentic otherness. And like I said, when you subject the entire population of the world to the same network, to the same um, technological system, that is going to eventually erase difference, whether it's local businesses, small businesses, or whether it's local accents. Eventually, everything is going to be engulfed by this same technological capitalist process. So I think that the fact that a class emerged to, quote unquote, get rid of your Boston accent, it speaks to this process of sameness. And it speaks to this idea that if you are going to participate in the global economy, you have to get on board with us, which means basically losing your sense of authentic difference and becoming part of the same. And part of the same is just part of this technological system. And I think what Kierkegaard was doing 150 years ago was seeing the origins of that and already sounding the alarm bell. And where, where what I'm doing is because everyone is, you know, glued to their smartphone screens and not seeing what's happening, I'm again sounding an alarm bell, not to compare myself to someone as brilliant as him, but that's the idea in, in the sense that why I use that passage from his book is because it's, he, he was saying basically the same thing that I'm saying, you know, is that um, there is a process um, that captures people, that takes over the subjectivity of people and forces them into being um, part of this process of sameness or part of this capitalist process. And I think that, I mean, you see, I mean, a really easy way to think of it is how Amazon is a company of the same. And what I mean by that is that it takes over all of the small businesses and all of the, you know, I mean, you look at like companies like Walmart and Amazon, I mean, what they've done to authentic difference in America is pretty astounding because if you were to drive through a small town in Iowa or Indiana or Oklahoma a hundred years ago, when you drive through these towns, what you would see is all kinds of different businesses, all kinds of doing different things. And now when you drive through, you see like a McDonald's and a Walmart. This is that process of sameness that I'm trying to um, elucidate. And what I'm also saying is this is not just pertaining to business. It's also pertaining to the way we speak in the world, the way we carry ourselves, the way we enunciate ourselves. And that would be eventually, you know, like something like accents would take a lot longer to eradicate than, you know, small businesses. But the idea is that uh, local accents and right, right. local dialects are, are really under attack today. Really, they are. And, 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 using, right, using Amazon as an example, I can totally attest to it because a lot of times I'm on there getting customer service, and I find it more and more difficult. Before, even as a, a couple of years ago, I could really uh, hone in on an accent and tell the uh, service agent, where they were calling from. I could almost hit 100%. That's getting more and more difficult. Actually, I know 
um, with individuals from Jamaica. You're not going to get that uh, that island accent man anymore. It's 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 indistinguishable from uh, mainstream, almost mainstream America. And so I'm seeing it. You're absolutely right. Uh, it's vanishing. Well, yes, okay. that's that seems to be happening. I mean, I think you'll still get accents if you know somebody's a foreign speaker, and they come. I mean, then you'll be able to hear some kind of difference in how they speak English. But I think local accents in the, a place like basically what I was trying to say is that America as a country is starting to speak in one accent only, right. you know, and all of these many, many, many accents that once defined a country like America, I mean, they're not entirely gone yet. I mean, of course there are people that still have Boston accents and there are, of course there are people that still have upper mid- Midwest accents and people who have Southern accents. Of course that's there, but, but the direction is that they're being lost. The, 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 the way things are going is that l- these accents are being taken over by a process. And that process is hell-bent on sameness rather than difference. That's the idea that I'm trying to get across. And that, you know, in the end, it's, you know, what I try to get across at the end is that, you know, the reason why you want to defend a local accent is because you want to defend life. You want to defend the very idea of global diversity. You want to defend the very idea of difference. Um, but when you're dealing with a process like globalization or gentrification, which are really this, I mean, gentrification is just a species of globalization. Um, you're dealing with a process that is demanding sameness, it's demanding optimization, efficiency, and more intense forms of equivalence and exchange. And when you get these accents, you know, like, like I said in the chapter, they're messy, they're, they're embodied, they're in the real world. And when you're trying to reduce everything to streams of data and, um, and um, that, that, that exist in virtual space rather than the real world, that demands a sense of the same. And, you know, that's why computational language, it's, it's based on binaries. It's based on ones and zeros. This is, a, this is a, an architecture of the same, literally. Um, so this is what we are up against right now. And, and, and I think that this process is what's, you know, in many ways making people certainly making the political environment of contemporary American life so unstable, but it's also making the psychological uh, environment of, of, of America, which has been so under attack over the past 20 years. Um, it's, it's certainly having a very, very negative effect on basic psychological and emotional balance. Well, you make the, toward the end of the chapter, you make a very scary jump to code. Well, code is the ultimate expression of sameness, right? Because right. everything is reduced to a simple binary language where there's really no difference at all. I mean, what, when we look at our computer screen and we see all these, you know, these, these simulated images and, and, and videos and different content, that is really masking that behind that, it's just the matrix screen. It's just ones and zeros. I mean, that's the basic, um, that's, that's the basic way that, that data is, uh, registered computationally. Well, you have a code is the, a limited exercise of language, and simultaneously, it is the imposition of a performing and productive limit. Limits can be productive, but outside of the space of limitation, infinite possibilities of language persist immeasurably. So, 
you know, it's a well, that's, that's actually not my that, – that's a quote that I use from the right. – in the chapter right. from, from, from Franco Barati. But, yes, he's, a, he's another one that I tend to use a lot because he's writing about similar things as myself, and, and he is, is explaining quite, eloquent, quite eloquently the, the danger of code. And, and, yes, of course, code can do wonderful things, and there's all kinds of amazing things that code can be used for. Um, in terms of economic efficiency and social interactivity, but there's also a real dark side of it. If, if we're not um, conscious and directing this, te- this technological process, if we let it get away from us, then it is eventually going to consume us entirely, and well, including our that. accents, you know, well, exactly. including our accents. I was horrified recently. I saw a phenomenal documentary about Pixar. And the very the first it was broken into segments. The first one was on inspiration and artistic creativity, which was brilliant. Uh, Italian American, I guess she was born Italian, but I don't I remember her name specifically. But it was just so inspirational uh, where she grabbed her ideas and how she uh, created unique and um, uh, you know things that were expression of who she was and uh, so uplifting. And then within a couple of um, uh, different individuals within the company. Some along a woman who was the total contrast to this woman was very uh, businesslike, um, uh, very, very uh, structured. And she talked about the fact that she discovered something in analyzing that something she noticed that nobody else did was that in the uh, most of the dialogues within the animations they were creating, mostly male uh, dominated. And so what she set out to do, she said that 60% of the population is female, 40% is male. So she thought that, that all movies, all stories from Pixar should represent that demographic difference. So that taking the dialogue that might have been predominantly male about male characters, et cetera, and now, now uh, to uh, spread it across and make it more equal, uh, 60% would be female and 40. And to do this, they would use code. Now, as an author and as a creative individual, this kind of horrifies me that the machines are going to level out the dialogue so nobody's offended. I don't know. I don't know enough about that to to comment, but it seems like a pretty normal statement that fits into the basic discourse of neoliberal ideology. But I mean, I, I, I don't know enough to comment on that. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm generally yeah, for equality. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I think that, that people's voices should be heard and, and different genders or different races and all that stuff. So, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But again, once you, once you uh, have uh, computers doing this work for you, it, it does introduce an, an, a problem. But I don't see how that relates to gentrification, really. Well, I, I just that uh, we, we're going to turn over instead of the creative process allowing to flow the way it, the author or somebody, the individual intended. We're going to filter it through a machine and uh, yeah, make it more. no, that's that's true. I mean that in in that sense, but that doesn't really strike. I mean that's the way things are now. I mean that doesn't really strike me as anything to be outraged at uh, because that's I mean that's the way. You know, I mean, we're at the point now where over the next 10 years, we're going to start to see artificial intelligence programs becoming journalists. We're at the point where we're going to see all of this um, 
computational technology start to be creative. I mean, um, they're, you know, painting pictures now and they're creating artworks and they're, and they're writing things. I mean, it's not quite at the level where they're able to um, really do it in a really, really efficient way, the way we can, but certainly they're able to analyze, let's say a, a screenplay to see um, how, how many times a female character speaks and how many times a male character speaks. Certainly they're there. Absolutely. Cause that's just right. a basic, that that's more of a basic algorithm where when you're asking a computer to speak and, and be creative in their speech, that's something that's more artificial intelligence. Right. Well, you move from, uh, from the dialect of Boston accent to Boston strong, which I found fascinating in terms of the marketing implications and the branding of a tragedy. So you want to pick up on that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, chapter two is a, um, it's a chapter where I analyzed the Boston Strong phenomenon, which was a response to the, um, the terrorist attack on Marathon, on the Boston Marathon in 2013. And um, I tried to analyze that, that, that mem, you could call it, um, and how it related to not only what the, the very tragic events of that day, but also the kind of gentrified nature that was already present in Boston's various neighborhoods and really the, the logic that grounds the city and how it operates today. Yeah. And I, you know, what's, what you really, again, toward the end of the chapter really comes home when you start talking about trauma and, you know, this is a, a theme that goes throughout almost every chapter that you did that the, the, what we're seeing is the rise in, um, in the uh, diseases, mental illnesses like depression and anxiety and, uh, what you mentioned is that even though that tra- uh, event was traumatic, that the tra- trauma had already occurred um, beforehand, no, and not necessarily the bombing, but the the death of the of um, you know of individualism and et cetera. Yeah, um, that you know that's one of you know I, I guess what I was trying to get across in that chapter was that a lot of the times when we think of a traumatic event, we always think of the, the, the moment of impact itself. We think of what happened when the trauma occurred. And what I tried to redirect the, the reader's view to is the, the, the pre-existing trauma that, was, that may have been activated by the event, right? So mm-hmm. there's always a, a background that is activated by any tra- traumatic event. And certainly something like a terrorist attack qualifies as a traumatic event. So I guess that's, what I was engaging in in that chapter, trying to reframe the narrative a little bit to maybe see things from a different perspective. But I I think to your point though, you know, because gentrification is a system that structures a person's really, it's like their way of life. It's their viewpoint into the world. It's their, it's the way they organize their cognitive and perceptual capacities. It's absolutely, and this is a, I think in a different chapter, it was titled Gentrification and Depression. You know, when we think about this kind of explosion of all of these psychopathologies that are now infecting the American population, and particularly with young people, and particularly with young, like the young workers that are living in these gentrified neighborhoods, what we tend to do is we tend to reduce these, these psychological or emotional problems to the individual. 
you know, we take like a therapeutic approach and say, oh, maybe you have some pre-existing biological trauma or maybe you had a rough time in childhood or maybe you had PTSD or something like that. But we never look at the environment in which the person's operating in. And, you know, something like, you know, when you're living within um, a, a, a social construct like gentrification, it's of course there's a possibility you're, you're going to be depressed because gentrification puts such a premium on economic productivity, um, self-optimization, um, and what it doesn't put a premium on is basic human friendship, basic community, co- communal interactivity, basic social interactivity that's not being captured by data and technology. So when you live in an environment like that, that in and of itself, independent of any pre-existing neurological or psychological factors, is going to cause psychological problems because it's going against, I don't know if I'd say basic human nature, but it's going against this basic impulse that we have to connect to people and be with people independent of um, some kind of capitalist or technological logic. This is one of the Bravo. things I think a lot of people don't realize is that gentrification is an entire system or an entire way that organizes urban life. And what it wants us to do is to literally reduce our entire existence as human beings to market and technological forces. It's basically to, to kind of you know, submit or sell our soul to these abstract forces. And when we do that, the, the logical uh, consequence of such a um, relationship is some kind of emotional dysfunction or spiritual dysfunction or mental dysfunction. So, and this is, I think, the, the really frustrating part of the mental health crisis in America is that, yes, of course, people have issues, right? People, I mean, we're all humans. We're all frail. We all, we all grew up in imperfect imperfect families. We all had uh, maybe difficult experiences from time to time. That is all true. But what this system of gentrification does um, is that it exasperates these pre-existing neurological or psychological, uh, you know, potentialities and really exasperates them simply by the way people live their day-to-day life, you know, and this kind of absent... This, this absence of um, embodied human connectivity, this absence of, I guess I'd call it authentic social being or something. Um, and everything is reduced to technological formations and, and, and moments of, of productivity, personal productivity, personal optimization, um, and, and um, you know, integrating somebody's work and life into the machine of global capitalism. I, again, you know, I so identified with the book. And I, again, I think it's what you, when you took the particular and uh, moved it from the, to the universal and the universal to particular, I think that, you know, what I want to tell the listener is this is a fascinating book because it just doesn't deal with concepts. It deals with real people. It deals with the politicians that existed in the last chapter, especially talks about uh, the boxing uh, that was central to South Boston that is now gone uh, but the individuals within it and the stories within it. And, you know, I grew up in Roxbury. I lived and during my teenage years, all, all of my 
uh, life was in South Boston. And then it was really that goodwill hunting, uh, real tough gangs, uh, all of the crime that went with it. Um, you know, the, the, the pitting of uh, the, well, you mentioned it in one of the, one of the fascinating chapters in the book is East Boston, the South, Southie East Boston game is dead. Uh, those rivalries are dead because those communities as they were are now dead. And when, Suggest move back to South Boston. Nuts. I said, I won't be able to park my car. And uh, they said, No, no, it's starting to change. And this is, we didn't see anything like we are seeing today. There was no, really no gentle. Nobody had found it out. So I moved there then and I slowly saw the the change. I saw the metamorphosis. And I tell you, it, 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 I, like when I tell people today, they say to me, why, uh, why, and now I moved, I sold my house and I'm out. And what do I, I said, now that I'm out, I, I realize what happened and why I grew more and more despondent because I saw the death of what was a, a vibrant society with all of the characters in the life. And maybe it wasn't all positive, but it was life and it was uh, connections and I realized I draw the analogy to being you don't boil a frog by throwing him in a pan of boiling water. He jumps out. But you can boil a frog if you put him in a pan of cold water and slowly turn up the heat. And that's what happened with gentrification. As little by little, more and more characters disappeared. More and more character in the housing and in the architecture disappeared. But it happens over years. And you're not aware that it's going in. Uh, you and I had a discussion a little while ago about how I saw parallels to uh, the Christmas Carol and the character Scrooge and who he was that he, he, he mirrors a lot of the things that we're seeing with what you call the cognitive work of the yuppie. The, um, well, I mean, we, we live in a society of Scrooges. I mean, uh, that's yeah. what, that's what, uh, that's what in many ways we've all become in, in the sense that, you know the, the moral of that play is is um, is a repolarization of of Scrooge's consciousness away from materiality or away from you know pure economic production back into his um, his spiritual and social composition. You know he goes and visits his past, he visits the future, he sees other people suffering, and he has a spiritual awakening from that. So I mean. No, I, I think that the entire structure of neoliberal globalization is, is turning society into Scrooges. And, you know, one of the things I just wrote this on Facebook the other day is that there's a really strong difference between happiness and the idea of being merry in the sense that happy, you know, and the other and what I said is like we live in a very unmerry society, but yet we're we're all obsessed with being happy. And, you know, the reason is because happiness is, is a word that describes a kind of interpersonal emotional state. So it's, it's a kind of a self-centered um, state. You know, we want to be happy. Um, whereas merry, being merry or, being, or having merriment or joy or something, this is something different in the sense that it, it references this kind of attention to the other, this attention to the cosmos, this attention to God, where this, 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 the, it's like the sense of being alive and just for being alive, we are merry. We're, you know, happiness, you know, this, this kind of obsession with being happiness tends to produce self-obsession. Whereas authentic merriment 
it's the exact opposite. You've lost yourself. You've, you've kind of let go of your own ego. And because of that, you're married. Because of that, you have this kind of, you, you, you radiate joy to others. And I think that, you know, you bring up the Christmas carol, that's kind of, um, you know, Scrooge is obsessed with his own happiness that he ties into his bank account. And then by the end, he, he, he experiences a sense of relief and joy because he has forgotten the importance of that psychic connection of his own self-worth with money. And because of that, he's able to experience, you know, Merry Christmas. You know, and I, I think it's, it's, very, it's, it's fascinating that we live in a culture that is so obsessed with happiness. I mean, my God, so many people in American culture, because we've been exposed to people like Tony Robbins and the, I mean, there's an entire ecosystem of motivational speakers and per, personal coaches that try to uh, train people to be happy. But really, this is like training of the ego. It's, it's training of, it's, it's, you know, and, and that's why so many people who are really, really determined to be happy are always fighting off depression. They're always kind of grappling with these, you know, kind of emotional dysfunctions. And, and merriment is something completely different because you're, you're dealing with this authentic um, encounter with life, this authentic un- encounter with the other. And you, you really, you know, in, in a state of merriment, you're losing yourself. You're, you're forgetting your own personal needs and, your, and, the, and the kind of um, the, 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 the strength, you could say, of your ego makeup. You're just forgetting that and just approaching life as is. And because of that, there's a sense of, sense of merriment and a sense of joy that accompanies that realization. So I, I think that... Um, gentrification would be a very similar thing in the sense that, you know, there's nothing merry about gentrification, nothing at all, but, <laughs> but, but, but you will have, but if you, you know, subject a neighborhood to a system like gentrification, what you will find is that all of the people that live there in their own little way are going to be searching for happiness. And that is a very paradoxical thing. When you have a neighborhood or a city where everyone's searching for happiness, but no one's merry or, 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 or the environment itself is depressing, that is a striking paradox, a striking con- contradiction that speaks to the fact that there is a problem. There is a irregularity in the relationship between the, 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 the social or cultural environment where people are operating and their own psychic makeup or composition. If I weren't holding a mic, I'd give you a standing ovation. I, uh, and this is what I experienced because, you know, I'm a comedian. Part of my job is to spread the merry. Part of my job is to lose myself. Part of my job is to, uh, you know, uh, make fun of myself, to uh, self-deprecate myself for the purpose of uh, evoking laughter in life. Uh, you know, I remember reading something a long time ago that a lot of entertainers were one magician. We take a, a, a state of normalcy or a, a certain state of equilibrium and we make it explode. We, it's like... Uh, a catalyst, a catalyst. We turn on and, and increase the energy level. You can actually feel the heat in a room go up when. Um, you sure, know, sure, it, sure, it, sure, sure, sure. I love exhausting. that. Yeah, it's exhausting. It is uh, when I think of what we do. That one individual can stand, especially stand-up comedy. One individual on a stage will move. Literally, there are times when I have a thousand people in the audience, and I'm moving that kind of energy. They're they're going from a state of rest to uh, a vibrational level where they're laughing and, and, and we, you know, it's no, um, 
it's no shibboleth that laughter is the best medicine. It's true. So many people have come up to me afterwards and seen, tell me that they hadn't laughed in three years and how alive they felt. So to take somebody with my mindset and then all of a sudden be in the pot and the heat's being turned up, it's not being turned up in a positive way. Slowly, the neighborhood's dying. And one of the things, and you can probably attest to it, all of us can, especially in modern age, we've all been in relationships that have turned sour. And I learned something from that. that, And I came up with a saying, and I've heard other people saying it. I don't think it's uh, particular to me. But I started to say, I would rather be alone by myself than to be alone with somebody else. There's nothing worse. Because as in one of the things I did want to talk about was man as a social animal. Um, we, we crave connection. We crave to be, uh, so we are social animals. I mean, Aristotle said it. And so for me, who, um, you know, it's in my nature to, to evoke a laugh, to make that connection. I, I, can't, I can't control it. But slowly but surely, there was nobody to do that with. Because what, and you, you know, in your in Vokey uh, attitude, the zombie, the, the, the cities become full of zombies. And the sameness, they're the same clothes, the same haircut, the same... Same, but nobody will make a connection. They're afraid to make a connection. Like there's something uh, immature about that, that there's something not professional. So it's well, I, you know, one of the things, though, is I, I think the sense of sameness, actually, I think that if you want to be completely honest, I think the sense of sameness is much more in the inner life of people, the inner um, yep. emotional or spiritual life, yep. whereas you know, you walk through a city today, everyone has tattoos. And I mean, I think on the outer level, you're seeing a lot of difference. I think mm-hmm. people are really trying to brand themselves and to market themselves and to, and to show them to, to, to show differentiation, but that differentiation is, is registering entirely on superficial things. And, you know, I, I don't want to call the body a superficial thing, but um, you know, like getting a sleeve tattoo or getting tattoos. I mean, this is something that really you wouldn't have done. You know, if you were working in, let's say, you know, 19, 1970s office building in, you know, downtown Manhattan or San Francisco or Philadelphia, you probably wouldn't have a sleeve tattoo. I mean, that, that would be highly unlikely. Whereas today, it's completely common, you know? So I think that the sense of sameness that I'm speaking to is more of a, a function that's happening to the inner, the interior space of individuals versus how they present themselves socially. If anything... Yeah. There's, people right, are presenting themselves in, in more elaborate, uh, different, more creative ways. But that in itself I, is masking right. the spiritual or psychic right. sense of sameness that's, that that's, 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 that's happening. I didn't see much of that in South Boston. I saw the same North Face jackets, which evolved to Canadian goose jackets, to the same hairstyle. <laughs> to the, okay. You know, you yeah. know, so, but I agree with you. Throughout the city, you're right, it's becoming more expressive. I totally agree with you that there's this zombie-like presence to the inhabitants of the cities. Um, there's a fr- this uh, fear of looking you in the eye, the fear of, you know, I, I find that the more I joke with people now, they just kind of, just kind of give me a whatever and, and yeah. move on. There's no sense of, I mean, one of the things that we have to, that, that we have to account for as global citizens, as Americans, as, you know, responsible human beings is that the way things are right now in 2020 there is a power or a force that now exists between human beings. And that power is connected to technology. 
you know, I, I don't know what to call it exactly. I, the, uh, a phrase that I've used throughout my writing is integration of computational power and global capitalism. I, I, now, I don't know if that's the correct phrase to articulate this phenomenon, but there is something that now sits between human beings really wasn't there so much or nearly to the degree prior to the introduction of the internet and the series of devices like um, smartphones and, and different uh, and, and different kinds of computing devices that are now there. And this, this direct, um, this, this, this kind of social connectivity that you're speaking of um, that human beings crave and that human beings want and that, really what defines and constructs human community and really human consciousness, there is another agent that is there right now. It's there. It's between us. And if we don't take account for this, if we don't mobilize ourselves in some kind of political or social way, it's only going to keep getting bigger and stronger and more rapacious in its desire to colonize this energy that human beings put out. And that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, Tom, when I saw The Matrix in 1999 in the theater, you look at that movie, ah, that's impossible. That, you know, that's just a science fiction pipe dream. Whereas today, you, know, you have someone like Elon Musk developing a company like Neuralink, which is literally um, inserting uh, microtubes into the human brain to connect it with this kind of overarching cloud computation system. I mean, it's not really science fiction anymore. Yes, it's, it's a long time away, but, but the... But the it's not just an idea anymore. There are actual material forces that could be mobilized to make that a reality. And when you look at the matrix, I guess the point that I'm getting at is that when you look at the matrix, all that really is, is this kind of massive technological system that sits between human beings. It mediates the relationship where now we're just in pods, right? Now we're just like living in this kind of fantasy virtual reality. But where we are now, and so many people don't see this, is that the crisis that we are in, both in gentrified cities and as a global totality, is precisely this growing technological power that is sitting between the intersubjective, connect, intersubjective connections of human beings. And if we don't get a hold of it, it's not going to stop. It's not just going to say, ah, okay, I think you guys have had enough. Maybe I'll just, you know, this, this power is going to keep metastasizing and growing and demanding more of our atten- uh, energy and attention and, um, and really spiritual power. And I think that's something that we have to be aware of because if we're not, these technological forces, which are absolutely linked, I mean, gentrification is in many ways a technological process, right? It's not just a social process. It's intimately linked to networks of technology, microelectronic technologies, digital networks. These things are all essential to the functionality of contemporary gentrification. And, you know, so this, this is something, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, people won't look at you in the eyes and, and, and this kind of lack of social contact. The reason why that is there is because there is this force in between us. There, 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 there's something invisible that now sits between human relationships. And, you know, we carry it around on our smartphones and we post about it on Twitter and, you know, we search for it on Google, but it's, it's, this, it's this invisible power that's really there, you know. And um, oh, at, at, some point, it, at, at some point, it has to be dealt with. 
Well, I, I saw it with the, you know, because I was in the industrial world, the, the, in the medical world, the medical field, and we went from analog uh, uh, imaging to digital imaging to, you know, in 1972 or three, I went to the Radiology Society of North America meeting in Chicago. It was the first one. First of all, I was in the, the Palmer Hotel, which was a small. It later moved over to the convention center, which... Uh, there were 50,000 people, uh, radiologists in the, the entire industry around them would descend on Chicago. And then that, uh, as, as late as 1970, the technology, the big tech, technological news of the day was that Kodak had gone from a three-and-a-half-minute processor, film processor, to a 90-second processor. That was it. There was not a computer on the floor, Okay. Go 10, 15 years later, all of a sudden, CAT scanning comes into, MRI comes into, um, the, uh, the ability to... But I mean, to- I, I, like, the, the thing is, though, it's like, it's so, like, for instance, I mean, you want MRI technology. I mean, that, that's saving lives. That's, that's doing all these wonderful things in the medical field. So I, I think that the problem is that this technological power that I'm speaking of, it doesn't really discriminate between good and bad technology. It just... It's growing itself. It's growing its own. It's, it's growing the limbs of, 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 of its apparatus. But I mean, I, I think the wrong response to something like gentrification or something like technology is to be anti-technology. You know, I mean, I'm personally not oh, no. necessarily well, anti-technology. Right. Yeah, um, the cat scan, we're the positive. But what, what came concurrent with that was all of a sudden now where there was, were no computers, there were no computers in the um, – in the offices and et cetera. You know what's here, but now you, there was no such thing as a desk without a computer. And even when I started my own business, which was a, a merry business, we made toys and animation um, and, you know, and ha- uh, hiring young uh, artistic people. And I would see them banging away at a computer, uh, you know, like crazy. And I'd say, what are you doing? They're going to work on an email. I go, well, who are you sending to? They were sending it to two desks away because they were more comfortable. This is back in, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. They were, that generation was more comfortable with email and texting than they were with an actual conversation. And I, I totally agree that that's, that becomes the medium through which people communicate. Is it's easier to do it through a machine than it is to sit down and actually have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And which, which had all kinds of implicit, you know, I find, you know, I found in, in my career that it was easy for a, an email to go out of control because there was, you couldn't read the person's emotion. You could sense it, but it was easier to blast off at somebody with an email than to do it face to face. So, um, emails became, and I think email and texting become, and social media with all the bullying, it's easier to be a bully uh, when you don't have to face somebody. Oh, and, and so you're absolutely right. I totally agree 1000%. And what, again, for somebody who, you know, this, it's in my nature to, uh, to want to make people laugh and to communicate and connect and have fun and to play and um, to see that that just totally evaporating. And I, I, I had a criteria that I, I started to use. When I found 
um, an urban dweller who was alive, who had something that the others around them necessarily didn't. A sense of they could see it, the sparkle in their eye, their sense of laughter, their sense of engagement. And I would start to ask a question, and I'm never wrong. I would say, "Excuse me, just a minute." I said, "Can I ask you a question?" I said, and they go, "Yeah." I says, "You grew up in a family where you had animals, right?" And they look at me horrified. They go, "How did you know that?" I says, "Because you can talk, because you can engage." I said, and every one of them would say, you're right, and our friends can't, and it scares us because we don't know where it's going. So even that generation, those who are alive, are, are fearful of where this is all going. Well, I mean, it's, I, mean the, I think that where we are now, both certainly in America and in the world, it's, it's very concerning on multiple levels. Um, and the reason why I've been interested in, in writing about gentrification, like I said, of my 15 books, four of them are on gentrification. Um, it's because gentrification is so relevant to the world because the world is in many ways uh, controlled or, um, or um, directed by what's happening in these massive city centers. I mean, this is where the real technological and economic power is emanating from. And because and because of that, a process like gentrification becomes so important to understand because of its relationship, its inherent relationship to urban life. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm generally a positive person in the, in the sense that I, I do, I, I have hope, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily be positive, but I've, I'm a hopeful person in the sense that I believe that um, things are going to be okay. But I do think that at the same time, there are a lot of very, very well, serious I, I, structural I, 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 problems in the world. And, and, and to me, the most dangerous one is technology. I mean, not even something like COVID doesn't even compare exactly. to the chaos and havoc that could be caused by um, if artificial intelligence got out of control or um, even if you look at the chaos that's been done by um, so much of the, the algorithmic programming and automation that's just been done to regular everyday people in terms of the economic devastation and the massive aggregation of wealth by a very small percentage of the population to um, dismantling so much social cohesion. I mean, the damage has really been done, you know, but we are, but I think the problem is that because the media class of America is so involved in this process that they really can't call it out the way they should from an informed journalistic perspective. And this isn't to say that I think, you know, the, the mainstream media has taken a real, a, a real, um, has, has, has gotten beaten up in the era of Trump. And I think that, you know, a lot of the people that work at, you know, CNN or MSNBC or these kind of prototypical liberal outlets, I don't think they're bad people at all. However, I think that the, the, the apparatus of the media itself, which would include all of these stations, is in fact part of and implicated in this technological process. And that has done so much damage to America and oh. the world. Um, no, even no, though even no. as it's done this damage, it, it has brought some interesting innovations and some helpful um, technological advancements for our lives. There's no doubt about that. But I think overall, the, the, there has been more damage to social and political life than there has been improvements. And I think that that is because it's so hard to pin it down and to get a real solid uh, theoretical understanding of what we're dealing with, we tend to instead scapegoat different things. You know, we spent the last four years scapegoating Trump as 
have been being the cause of all of the problems in America. And now it's being shifted to something like COVID, where this is why everything's so messed up right now. But the fact is, things were messed up beforehand. Exactly. Things, not only were things messed up beforehand, but the, the messing up was a historical process that was getting more messed up and more messed up and more messed up as things progressed. And, you know, something like Trump and something like COVID, they just latch on to this process. They don't necessarily, um, um, do, you know, they're, they're only accelerating trends that are, that, are, that are in place before. And even, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting. I mean, Trump's a great example. I mean, I mean, Trump, I mean, something like Donald Trump is like one of the arch gentrifiers of New York City. I mean, he is, I mean, I, I think Donald Trump's a very interesting case study in terms of gentrification because on, on one hand, nobody has, I mean, this, this guy got so many tax breaks in New York to build luxury real estate throughout Manhattan because his father actually was, who was also a property developer, he was building houses for like, you know, firefighters in Queens and nurses in Brooklyn. He wasn't building these kind of luxury towers that his son ended up doing in the, in, in the 80s and 90s. But so on, in, in one sense, someone like Trump is like the, the arch gentrifier of a city. But yet on the other hand, he claims to love all the cops and the firefighters and the frontline workers and the, and he very well might like them. I'm not saying it's disingenuous. What I'm saying is that he is confused about how life works because you can't on one hand, you know, gentrify an entire city, turn an entire city into luxury condominiums. And, you know, of course with that, you get this, you know, people priced out of neighborhoods and regular people can't live there and you get a whole, different kind of culture industry that incubates itself into the city. And then on the other hand, say, ah, I love cops. I love the common Joe taxi driver. It doesn't work like that. That's not how it works. <laughs> now, again, I'm not saying he's disingenuous. He very well may like the firefighters. I mean, I don't know the guy, you know, but what I'm saying is that it's what, he, what he's saying is completely and utterly logically inconsistent. Totally. Exactly. Because exactly. you're, so, right. so, and, and, but this speak, but like, I guess what I'm saying is that the, this kind of, um, this address that Trump gives this kind of bipolar address, it's not just Trump doing it. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the liberal establishment does it from the opposite end where they're speaking out of two sides of their mouth and they're confusing people. So we, we definitely need, um, in terms of American politics, a, a more clear, grounded um, kind of lucid vision of what we, what we are actually dealing with right now. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of an affirmation because what, what comes through in all of your work and, and it, on an intellectual cerebral level, it's fascinating. It's, I love it. You know, I feel like I'm back in graduate school reading some, some academic treatise and it's uh, so stimulating that way, but what comes through, all of your writing is the sense of caring, the sense of a purpose. You, you talk constantly. It's not um, pervasive, but it's there, the sense of isolation. And that's your concern. Um, you know, am I reading that right? I'm, I'm definitely concerned about it because I've experienced it myself and I, I know how devastating it is. And that's, I mean, part of the reason why I don't live in America anymore and why I live in a, you know, I, I live in Iquitos, Peru, which is a, the major city of the, I mean, what I like about living in Iquitos, I, I was going to say it's the major city of the Peruvian Amazon. What I like living about in a city like uh, Iquitos is that 
you know, the street life is so, so vibrant there. I mean, you, I walk out of my apartment in, in, in downtown Iquitos and it's, I mean, it's carnivalesque. There are, you know, popcorn mm-hmm. vendors and kids playing on the street. And, no. I mean, there's just people everywhere, no. you know, and, and, no. and that in itself is therapeutic. I was just having a conversation with, with a friend of mine today and I said to him, you know, for me, like walking down the street has a therapeutic effect in the sense that there's a, a like a vibrant street culture that I'm always around. You know, there's artists and there's, there's people like you, you walk, I mean, Aikido's is a city that's, that uh, has a lot of plazas or kind of, I guess there's city parks, I guess, we call them plazas that are kind of dispersed throughout the city. And you walk in these plazas every night from, you know, six to eight, it's just packed with people. People yes. sitting down, people sitting on the benches feeding pigeons and people walking. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And then you come back into, uh, you know, uh, uh, urban American life and it's totally different. It's this kind of hyper competitive instrumental nature that's really deteriorating the very capacity or, poten- or the potentiality to have a street life like that. So I think that so many people in America don't even realize that something like what I experience on a day-to-day level could be, even be possible anymore. And I think in a way they might be right. It's not possible unless there's significant, significant structural change to um, the, I don't even know what, how, how we would go about doing it, but what we, what, I mean, I'm not necessarily at the point in my writing where I'm, you know, offering any solutions. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like the doctor uh, diagnosing the, the, the sickness at this point. You know, I don't have any, I don't think anybody has any answers of, of, of what we can do to escape this, this monstrous process. Um, or, or Kierkegaard called the, the monstrous abstraction. And that's really what it is. I mean, when you look at the, the abstraction of this kind of technological apparatus, this, 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 this techno-capitalist apparatus, which includes, you know, like Amazon and Google. I mean, these are just functions apparatus. They're not the, the, the thing itself. They're, they're just kind of symptoms of this whole thing. Um, it's, it's really just taking over human life. It's, and, and not just, you know, business. It's taking over our brains and our souls and our bodies. And this is something that's very concerning. And, of course, one yeah. of the... Um, symptoms of this process as it takes over human communities and urban neighborhoods and people's lives is of course a sense of alienation, a sense of isolation, a sense of, I feel so alone. And, um, you know, maybe something like COVID with all these really very, very sad lockdowns that have been affecting so many small businesses, maybe it's a good thing, not in the, and I don't mean that in a very, you know, in a cynical way. I mean that when, when, can really see the extent of this alienation and loneliness they can they'll be willing to do something about it in some way i don't really know but but i i think um you know the there's been a lot of talk during this covid pandemic about effect of loneliness right but i mean the loneliness was there before the pandemic i mean just, i mean now it's just like now 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 it's just you're now it's just you're forced to be lonely in your house Whereas before you were lonely as you walked down the street or went to work or whatever. So, I mean, the loneliness in a culture like America is really structural to the fabric of 21st century American life. And that, of course, is a result of the overdetermination of both capitalist power and and technological intrusion into our private and social lives. But at some point, like this, this can 
on indefinitely. It, it really can't. And at some point, right. there is going to be either a, I don't know, a, a breakdown, maybe kind of a resistance. And yep. maybe the resistance won't be that pretty. I mean, because you have um, different groups on the American left and right that are totally capable of resisting. But I don't know if that's the kind of resistance that we want. You know, I mean, so there, there really has to be some kind of spiritual resistance exactly. versus necessarily a, 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 a political resistance. But again, I mean, I, I think, you know, I wrote most, I mean, the, I think what's interesting is that I wrote most of this book from the Amazon jungle, you know, from the middle of the Amazon jungle. So um, you get a different perspective writing from a place like that on what's happening back in America. And, um, and, you know, that's where I've written most of my books now. because I've been living down there for almost four years now. Um, so a, a, a lot of my vision of the world, even though thus far I've been writing about, you know, things culturally, I, I, I guess you could say, in the world in America, I've really only written one book about um, life in the Amazon so far. Uh, that, that's going to change soon. But I, I wrote a book called The Ayahuasca Dialogue, which is about plant medicine and, and the shamanic culture of the Peruvian Amazon. But most of my books are, they're written from the Amazon jungle, but they're kind of looking out into the world, right? And, and kind of trying to theorize and explain and articulate what we're dealing with in the era of 21st century globalization and, and gentrification, because as I said, gentrification is just a subfunction of globalization. Well, you know, I can see why that can happen because I've traveled extensively throughout South America. And the, even though that they're less developed countries, the aliveness, you know, the, the humanity, the and people who have, you know, living in huts and, and people who have barely enough food, uh, never mind any of the amenities that we have in the, in the West, it's it's alive, and so when you come from that, you know I remember just being, and you know I would travel down there in our winter there summer, and then coming back to Boston and just the starkness of Boston, you know the the, the you know like I said before about all everybody's in everything's dark, everything's gray, there's no smiling, there's no interconnection, and you just that wakes you up to both sides of it. You know you're alive and down there, and you're having fun uh, with very little. And then you come here, and there's there's immense wealth, and and yet there's no real spiritual wealth. And I think that's what hit me in watching the Christmas Carol. I said, "Oh my God, this is a, this is a yeah." I mean, it's it's definitely not like everybody's um you know you know spiritually enlightened on and true or anything no. like that. But there is but 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 there is more of a sense of social cohesion without question. There is more of a, a external externalized. Um, social connectivity. It's not completely colonized by um, um, our online activities. There, there's still a, there's still real action happening in the street. There's still real action happening in the home. And I think too, a lot of the young people definitely, I mean, you know, you, you walk around a keto, so all the kids have, not kids, but all, all like the teenagers and, you know, 20, you know, young 20 year olds have smartphones, of course, but, but you still get the sense that they want to, be out of too, you know what I mean? So, so whereas in America, it's, it's much more, you know, life is much more transposed onto the network. It's much more virtual where there, at least in the Kitos, um, yes, young people are definitely, you know, 
using it to, to, to communicate and play games or whatever, but, but there's still the recognition that life is happening on the street too. Well, a question I posed to you, Obey, was seeing the evacuation city and it hit me, you know, these things, I don't ask for them, but I get these, you know, illuminations. And I said, wait a minute, if, 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 COVID happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even since the early 90s, would we see a mass exodus? And the answer is no. Why? Because they were communities. They, they, people lived there. They, that's where they grew up. Their families were there. Their neighbors were there. Their friends were there. And, but, but also, too, Tom, it's like they couldn't be was there. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Whereas, well, what, one of the things about why people are living, and like I said in the beginning of, the, of this talk, why I might have to update my ideas on gentrification based upon the response of urban residents to the COVID crisis in the sense that they could leave and work over zoom. That just, that doesn't take to me. That's just, if, if all of a sudden you get this influx of, um, you know, tech workers from Silicon Valley to Idaho and, you know, financial or whatever workers in Boston to New Hampshire or Maine, that in many ways, is not going to reduce the gentrification of Boston or the gentrification of San Francisco. What that is going to do is export the logic of gentrification to these smaller towns and these smaller cities. So I think that, you know, the subtitle of the book is how to become a global citizen in the era of global gentrification. And I I do think in many ways we are living in an era of global gentrification. We are living in an era where, you know, everything and every, and more importantly, everybody is becoming gentrified. And I think that's something that we have to wise up to pretty quick. Well, you know, when I uh, look out, used to look out of my window in South Boston and I would see the, you know, the, it looked like a marathon every single day. And, you know, you start to notice as the technology changes in the last few months there, I don't think I could see one jogger who could take more than 10 steps without checking their smart, their smart uh, watch. In, in, there was 10 steps and then look at the watch. Ten, and what are they measuring? They're measuring their time. They're probably measuring their heart rate. They're totally, it's so, there's no joy to the running. It becomes what you talked about all throughout this uh, conversation, optimization, you know. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the word of the day. That's the logic of the times. Um, So yeah, that's, that, that's not surprising at all. But at the same time, I mean, I, to me, when I see this stuff, I would never look at the person doing that as being like, you know, I like, there's no moral judgment on someone doing that because they're doing, they're, they're, they're they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. You know, they're, 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 they're responding to the ideological power of neoliberalism. Now, they may, you know, what's interesting about people like that, you know, maybe the guy who started running was a big time attorney in downtown Boston, or maybe he was a, a you know, a, a software architect. We, we don't know what he was, but probably something like that, is that what's interesting about neoliberal ideological power is that the people who are most controlled by it don't really know they're controlled by it. And furthermore, exactly. the people who are most controlled by it are actually quite intelligent. They're quite talented. They have, you know, extensive educational pedigrees. And that's one of the really interesting things about how the, 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 um, the kind of gaseous nature of neoliberal ideology, how it, it's, it instantiates itself everywhere. And it presents its, like, I, I think what, if, if there is one way to describe neoliberal ideology, 
it's kind of um, or, or a person. It's like kind of this Tony Robbins idea of being your best self, um, where in, in the sense that everybody thinks that they're doing what they really want to do and yeah. they're living their life the way they really want to live it. When in fact they are actively pr- participating in this ideological system that is um, the kind of PR wing of this techno-capitalist apparatus that I've been speaking of. You know, I mean, and that's really what ideology is. It's a I, ideology is a it's a way to make sense of the unsensible. It's it's a way to make incoherence. Um, um, sensible, right? But 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 in, in a more simpler way, it's like it's like a public relations um, operation, in in the sense that it's um it's telling you to do so. It's 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 filling in the gaps, and, well, um, and 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 the PR of the day is definitely something along the lines of Tony Robbins: live your live your best life, be your best self, um, things like that. And it's and it's all about multitasking. Go go go. Uh, you know, you know, he, he sells a program called mastery and you can do it in three days. Uh, yeah. And so, um, but let's, but this, you you just touched on a point that I found fascinating was the, um, the, the race for a seat in, um, in, in the ward, I forget the ward number, but the South Boston. No, District 2. District 2. Okay. And um, that was the, that's chapter four of the book, the race for district okay, two. And the emergence, oh, no, no, and, I, actually, the title of that chapter is the death of the Irish American politician. That's the title. Right. Chapter. Right. And you talked about the emergence of a guy who sounded as though he was, uh, you know, he had a, uh, an Irish name. Was it Mike uh, Kelly? Was it? Yes. Mike he, Kelly. He, yeah. He was Mike a politician. Kelly ran, ran against what I thought was, was, was solely expository, solely enlightening which you pointed out the, that he should have won that election because the you know he came, comes from the South End, which is basically a, a hotbed of neoliberal ideas and individuals, and he's you know there's still was a certain segment of South Boston that is you know traditional Southie, but still overwhelmingly the new cognitive worker, and the fact that the cognitive worker um, they have neoliberal ideas. Yuppies, yuppies. Cognitive workers, yeah, the same thing yuppies. as yuppies, you know. Yeah, and, and you, I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> what you said, they, they, sh- he should have won hands down, but he ran, he didn't run on a nitty gritty, uh, you know, um, issues. He didn't run on things that were particular to the community. He didn't run on uh, ideas of. Uh, you know, uh, affordable housing or things like that. He ran on national neoliberal um, policies. And well, the- I mean, he, he, I, I think what I was trying to get across in that chapter, and I was, you know, that's only a part of the chapter, the race, the, the, the city council, the district two between Mike Kelly and, and Ed Flynn. But I was trying to just illustrate the point that the, the Irish Catholic politician, as we know it in Boston, is a disappearing figure. He's, he's, he's on his way out, even though someone like Marty Walsh as mayor and someone like Ed Flynn was able to win the district two seat. Ultimately the Irish Catholic politician that was once so essential and so important and so structural to the overall political dynamic of Boston is a vanishing figure from the city. And of course it's, it's, this is what's happening because 
as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, the, the working class Irish Catholic bake is, has been exported from the city. It's no longer, it's no longer an existent social feature of the city of Boston. So of course, it's only a matter of time before their political represent their political representation will be gone as well. But what was interesting about that specific race was that yes, you know, even though Mike Kelly has an Irish last name, you know, he was in many ways the very opposite of like kind of an old school South Boston politician. He was representative of this new wave of you know the. For lack of a better word, yuppie, right? That's that's a that's a, right. a word that exactly. we can use to describe the new wave of young cognitive professionals that are now inhabiting city centers around the planet, really, not just Boston. And whereas Ed Flynn, who's from South Boston, his father was mayor. Um, by all accounts, Kelly should have won that race hands down because his people, right? These young professionals, they're the ones living in the South End in South Boston, and you know, through parts of Chinatown. Whereas Ed Flynn, that connection to that old political lineage of South Boston, it's, it's really not there anymore. But the problem is, is that the, um, the demographic of Kelly, like I said, these young professionals, they're not politically active. At, I mean, they were politically active in the national race for presidency, but they're really not politically active in terms of city, local political events. Whereas Flynn was able to mobilize, you know, the, the, the remnants, what was there from the South Boston political community, and he was able to win. So I thought that race was just in, in, instructive of a developing trend in Boston politics at large. And, and nationally, because they vote along uh, national issues. You're right. They, 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 well, I mean, they what, what I thought that was interesting about Kelly in his campaign, and when I analyzed it, like he put a lot of things like you know, a woman's right to choose and gay marriage as issues for his campaign. But I mean, what was interesting about that to me is that a city councilor in Boston has nothing to do with those issues. Exactly. I mean, no, no legislative power to even come within a 10 foot pole of those issues. I mean, they, I mean, these aren't even really city issues. These are state and, and really they're federal issues. So I just thought that was interesting that a city, a person running for city council would make issues such as that as centerpieces of his campaign. And what that speaks to really, that in my own analysis of that race, was that the impracticality of contemporary neoliberal politics. It's, just, it, it's exactly. really not connected to the, exactly. what, what I say, in the, in the, I think the, the adjective that I used to describe in the chapter is it's theoretically bare and falling on deaf ears, falling on deaf ears, <laughs> falling on the ears of people that don't even vote. Whereas exactly. Flynn was, you know, he was talking about you know, housing issues and, you know, just kind of practical city matters that regular people want want to hear about. And, you know, that's, I don't know if that's why he won. I think the reason why he won is because there's, even though, you know, there aren't a lot of quote unquote original South Boston people left in the neighborhood, the people that are there still do vote and they still do want somebody to represent them politically. So he he was able to round those people up and, and he was able to win. And, um, and Kelly wasn't, you know, yeah, but, what is but, again, the, but again, the trend is there. You know, the exactly. trend is happening. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and it's about ideology. You know, uh, I remember reading um, the way of Zen, I uh, got probably 40 years ago and Alan Watts, just the first chapter, this is the worst wars are ideological wars. And that's what we're seeing right now. 
Um, it, it's not about a war based on trying to uh, win resources or you know take over territory. That easy to has hurt him enough, and he doesn't have the ride. But an ideology, somebody will drive a jet engine into a skyscraper because of their ideology. Um, they have a mission, and that's what's dangerous about today is everybody's festering these uh, ideologies, most of them being fed to them by mass media and whatever, and uh, clinging to them. And, you know, th- that I think is what's becoming very dangerous for America. Maybe. Yeah. 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 You know, so, uh, well, it's all, um, I don't know, I just I love these uh Discourses. I don't know if you have anything more. I think that. No, no, no. That's thank. Thank you for having me on, man. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was brilliant. I just want to tell people that uh, we barely touched on uh, all of the pithy um, messages, and and uh, I, uh, I think even some of it. I I I told you earlier today that I look at you as a poet and a, and a prophet and a visionary, and uh, somebody who goes into this. And that last chapter is. Uh, though um, though different from the rest of the book, I think takes the whole book to a level where you you captured the essence of the, um, the old South Boston with the the boxing. And not only South Boston, I went to Mission Church High School, so I you know the whole chapter on mission uh, the mission projects and the impact that it had on the NBA and. The mo- you know, what it afforded the mobility of uh, black athletes to escape the city. Uh, and and the, when talking about boxing, all of the things that uh, were tied to an industrial Boston, to a real vibrance. You know, the, what you're discussing about um, the, living down in Peru, you know, that was Boston. Heck, you could go to the North End on, a, on a, any night and just see characters. I mean, it looked like something sure, sure, out sure. of... Sure. Yeah, yeah. It looked like something out of uh, the, the Bronx Tale, um, you know, every night and in in Southie, every you know, from Day Boulevard would be during the late '60s, early '70s, uh, that entire six mile area would be pods of beautiful cars, uh, convertibles, and and music coming out of them, and and uh, kids hanging out and uh, cruising, and there there was this vibrancy, um, and that's to. To have lived you know, as long as I've lived, and to see it slowly starting to go where the merriment is is no longer uh, it's uh, it's a painful transition. So maybe I'll be uh, hanging out with you down in Peru. <laughs> hey man, come 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 for a visit. You'd love it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, brother. Brian Francis Calkin, thank you very much, everybody. Please uh, pick up the book, and uh, we'll see you next time, Brian. All right, Tom. Bye. Thanks. Bye. is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.